We're going to have our, our quiz at the end of class. Just to let you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to give a shout out to, to Bishop Sis today. Who of you, you, if you're from his diocese, you can't comment. Know what Bishop Sis did before he was bishop. What the big thing that he did that put him on the map? That he, No, before that. No. No. Umberto, you want to tell us what he did? He was he was the chaplain in the mid to late nineties and early two thousands of Texas A and M. He's the one that that created the the best ministry in the in the nation. He's the one who did, and who is consistently given because of what he did. I mean, we I went there as soon as he wasn't pastor there anymore, but I went there as soon as I got at UL in two thousand ten, and he gave the best practices. Looked at what he did. Uh, he completely changed that and gave just sort of the flagship university for Catholic ministry. Uh, so he's got a great lasting impact. He, he has a vision. He, he, 95 is when it started. I forgot he might get in a little bit earlier, but he was there, I think, to the mid-2000s when David Condola took over. I mean, he was the one who, who began the... Yeah, so anyhow, we're going to... Um, Finish our kind of fundamental principles here today, and then we're going to go to the moral status on Monday. Um, looking at the role of conscience and prudence and sort of other virtues, um, you know, all of our principles are important, but decisions are going to have to be made. Um, you are going, we're going to talk about kind of practically today, you are going to be called to give advice. Um, and sometimes in very difficult life and death situations. Uh, so you better be prepared to, to help others. So uh, we've already looked last year at conscience and prudence, so we're going to rehash it a little bit and then try to get into the weeds. Specifically, it comes to the ERDs and overall understanding of healthcare ethics. So conscience, as we've already seen in Catechism 1796, it is a, quote, judgment of reason by which the human person recognizes the moral quality of a concrete act, unquote. So remember, we can call it the little voice of God all you want. It's a judgment of your reason applied to a very specific situation, taking the, the rules and the regulations and applying them uh, to a concrete act. The healthcare ethics book, the big one that y'all have, says it may be defined as the intellect itself. I like that. Exercising a special function, the function of judging the rightness or wrongness of our own individual acts, according to the set of moral values and principles the person holds with conviction. To put it a bit differently, conscience is a person's reason making a practical, concrete judgment about the morality of action the person is about to perform all already performed. You know, it's funny, we normally think of, oh, my conscience is bothering me. So we normally think it's something that's already happened. Uh, but really here in this case of moral theology, we are looking to apply it in specific cases. There's personal conscience, but I think we can also argue, uh, and it's something that Father Ostriaco brought up in his book, that we can have corporate conscience. Uh, uh, can a hospital have a conscience? Can a business have a conscience? Uh, ethics committees have consciences, which sort of points to a, a larger corporate responsibility, but that's stuff y'all will discuss in social justice. So basically, we need to be conscientious. 
Uh, we need to always be willing to evaluate certain moral actions, which brings the need of having a well-formed conscience. Really, last year, our discussion on conscience, uh, when y'all really were like, I think I brought this up, Father, we didn't really, we thought there needed to be more. The basic John Paul II approach to conscience, a very splendor, there needed to be more discussion on conscience and its formation. So I listened to you, and we have two classes on conscience, uh, where we're going to talk about how realistically a conscience is formed. So basically, yeah, we, we, we have our synderesis, understanding those basic first principles. But when it comes to forming our conscience, we need ethical principles. But here, guidelines in regards to healthcare and bioethics. Um, very, very specific stuff, which means you have to have a, a little knowledge of medicine, a little knowledge of science, a little knowledge of healthcare. And for Catholics, as much as we don't, as we talked about last year, you just don't like, oh, well, the Pope says this, let me read it and then put it in my brain and spit out an answer. Uh, we know, though, need to really have the magisterium and the teachings, particularly of the popes and the CDF, here to form our conscience. And it really seems that the church has taken a proactive stance in this. If you look in, let's say, the past 50 years, when it comes to uh, magisterial proclamations or clarifications from the Vatican, at least what I've seen, a large number of them, I don't know if I'll say a majority, but a large number of them deal with healthcare and bioethics. They deal with these life issues uh, and sexuality issues, if you want to sort of put that in into there. So the church really sees the importance of that. And the general introduction of the ERDs uh, speak to that. So I'll give you the paragraph. This is sort of you read in the general introduction. In a time of new medical discoveries, rapid technological developments, and social change, what is new can either be an opportunity for genuine advancement in human culture, or it can lead to policies and actions that are contrary to the true dignity and vocation of the human person. Recognizing, man, things are changing. They are moving forward. We have to keep up with the pace. In consultation with medical professionals, church leaders review these developments, judge them according to the principles of right reason, natural law, and the ultimate standard of revealed truth, revelation, and offer authoritative teaching and guidance about the moral and pastoral responsibilities entailed by the Christian faith. While the church cannot furnish a ready answer to every moral dilemma, there are many questions about which she provides normative guidance and direction. So again, you're going to face a lot of moral dilemmas when it comes to bioethics. And we can't expect the church, just like in sexual ethics, to explain everything, but she can offer normative guidance. In the absence of a determination by the magisterium, and the magisterium has made very clear determinations in certain things, but never contrary to church teaching, the guidance of approved authors can offer appropriate guidance for ethical decision-making. And so I think in those books, Father Nicanor Ostriaco is fantastic. Father Tad Boholchek in the United States is wonderful. Father Dr. John Haas, uh, all the authors in that book right there are, are wonderful. So what I generally try to do is if I'm going to present an article to y'all, I'm going to look at the author and see who this person is. Uh, Father Benedict Ashley did a lot of great work uh, to see their comments. Whether they're Catholic and sometimes non-Catholic, Gilbert Mylander, uh, Leon Koss, 
gives some very valuable insight. They're not always going to give answers. And that's the thing. You as priests are not always going to be able to give clear answers. Uh, but you're going to be able to hopefully give guidelines to help for, form consciences and make judgments. Um, and again, you won't always know the answer. This is this is the great thing. I think I may have told you, my old pastor, Bishop Provo, honors, he, he taught this to me. He said, you as a priest will most often not always know the answer. But what's important is you know where to find it. And I know the answer, but you got to, I know where to find it. And if you don't know where to find it, you know who knows where to find it. You, the, the answer is out there. So you're going to have a responsibility to form consciences, especially in areas of these technological advances, these bioethical and healthcare stuff. So what do you think, what is the biggest issue? I don't know, I'm going to throw this out here. We can have a little discussion. Uh, of the past, let's say, 50 years, outside of contraception, which we know was a big mess, that most Catholics generally have no problem with right now. And the reason is probably because priests didn't talk about it enough. And even if they did talk about it enough, we'll see whether or not people listen. IVF. IVF, absolutely. No, No one talked about it. Now, granted, why do they not talk about it? Probably most of them didn't understand it. That's a big part of it. I don't think they necessarily disagreed with it, but it wasn't really discussed. But here's the thing. Do y'all really think, and, and, and maybe it's true, I'm not saying it's not true, how effective is getting up there to Sunday Mass Catholics who go to Mass once a week if you're lucky and who are not necessarily really vigorously practicing their faith outside, if you talk about these issues, how effective is it going to be to change minds and hearts? I wouldn't say zero. I would, I would say... What do y'all think? I mean, you can talk about it every weekend. Every weekend for a whole year we're about IVF. Then you're just going to make everybody mad. You're going to talk about these. Like, how, how, do you, how would you approach this? You know, I, I, preaching, is, I, I, preaching is important. And I, I think, just like with sexual ethics we talked about, you could talk about it, but you can really give the fundamental principles. But yeah, John, what, what were you going to say? Go ahead. Well, I think marriage prep definitely. It's going to be formation. So that we had Father Dr. Damon Cudahy go, well, actually, they had it at Wisdom this year. He came just to talk on bioethics. It was packed. Because people want to, these issues are interesting in people's minds. They want to hear it. So if you give the opportunity, just like in a parish, if you do a night where you bring in a candle lawyer to talk about annulments, you will have people go to it. Uh, you'll have people go to it. And the truth is, it may be just the people who are interested but that's the 20% that you're going to want to invest in because they're the ones who are going to go out, just like the apostles and the disciples. Jesus invested most of his time with them because they're the ones who are going to go out and bear good fruit. But the thing is that, yeah, you could, you could teach it to them, but what is going to be the key for them to really grasp these things and understand them? Yeah, you've got to have a relationship. If there's anything y'all have heard me talk about over and over again, you must have a relationship with them. 
So you can gra- get, gather like a, a, a group of couples. I think that's what I talked about, how I always do. I'm going to get about seven or eight couples. And it's a relationship that you build with them. You meet once a month. You see them. You talk to them. They trust you. They listen to you. They know you love them. Then they will listen to you. The other thing that takes, it's gonna, it, it takes time, and I will say this from my experience, and maybe others would disagree with me, if you're, unless you're in a parish for eight to 10 years, you can forget it. I mean, just to build up the relationships for the people to get to really know you, to be able to, to have enough of a change where you change the face of a parish, this idea of moving priests every six years, um, you just just when you're starting to get work done and people are beginning to trust you, oh, you're out of here. And some new guy comes in and flushes everything you did about down the toilet. You know, it's it's a real difficulty. Um, but you you can have an influence. It just takes a lot of patience. Um, I really appreciate you saying the relationship thing. We had a, a negative experience, and the flip side of that is, if you don't have that relationship and you come in like as a guest or as a student brand new for a few of it here, and we had somebody give a bioethic homily on a Sunday, people had never even met him yet, and we had several families get up and walk out. Oh, yeah. It was horrible, and I mean, we're still, this was like four years later, we're still recovering from... Oh, yeah, because you come in, like, you come in, and you talk about this, and people aren't prepared for it, because the bioethics, it's, you have to have the basic principles, so... I was shocked. I kind of was like not that offended by it, but I was really surprised the damage it did and how quickly it did the damage. That's where the first couple of years you just got a lot of people give them the basic anthropology. I couldn't believe it. And then you could begin building on top of it. So let's say the first two or three years, we're just doing anthropology. We're just like who the human person is, what's the meaning of the body, and then you but you gotta have a vision. But we'll get to that another time. But here's the thing, who has the primary responsibility to have their conscience formed? Individual. The individual person. It's, it, you have a responsibility to form consciences, but it's up to them. It's up to families, it's up to communities, it's up to the individual. But here's the thing, and, and this is what I found, as much as, yeah, maybe most people won't care, even those people who won't care, when their kid is dying of cancer, when their grandmother is sick in the hospital and on the vent, they will come to you. They will come to you, even though they may have never come to... And even then, they may, they may not come to you for the bioethical question. They're going to come to you, come anoint on tea. And then you're going to be able to start maybe paying attention to hearing certain things. You know, oh yeah, well, we decided not to give her any food anymore or water. Well, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll address those issues. Um, but if you have relationship, if you put yourself out there, if they know you're a priest who will go to the hospital, who, who will drop what they are doing to go to the hospital, if, it is, uh, if there's imminent danger or if you're present, then they'll trust you enough to listen to you when you talk about these questions. So you're, I think you're going to get questions like this. When, it looks, when I look at my time as a priest, when I would get calls or whatever, a lot of them dealt with ethical issues. And if it's not marriage and family, it's often bioethical issues, Bio- generally, in my own experience. Uh, because there's hospitals are so big, healthcare is so big, and there's always going to be someone in your parish who is either sick or dying. Always. 
and there's going to be a decision you have to make, particularly if you're an older parish, even if you're a younger parish, having to deal with these issues of, of neonatal ethics and, and whatnot. So what about the judgment of conscience? We've already talked about this, and the Catholic Healthcare Ethics book sort of elucidates different types of judgments of conscience. So we've informed our conscience. We're, we're faced with the situation. We've got to make a judgment. Certain conscience is a conscience that judges without doubt or fear that the opposite is true. Like, I'm certain. My conscience is clear that I should not have this abortion. Doubtful conscience is a conscience that either makes no judgment or judges with fear that the opposite is true. I'm not really sure. Yes. Doubtful conscience. If you look at your healthcare ethics book, it'll list it out. Erroneous conscience is one that judges good as evil or evil as good, misreads the objective moral situation. And correct conscience is a conscience that judges good as good, evil as evil in a word. It accurately gauges the objective moral situation. Now, granted, you can have a correct conscience that is certain, but you can have a correct conscience that is doubtful. You may not know that you've judged it correctly. But it says that two overarching principles have been formulated to help persons deal with issues of conscience. Never act with a doubtful conscience. Always obey a certain conscience. And so this brings up the question that Ostriaco brings up elsewhere in his book of certitude. Whenever we make a judgment, there's going to be a type of certitude that comes with this. And are you ever going to, in a judgment of conscience, have like a mathematical certitude? No. In certain cases, which are maybe moral dilemmas, you're going to be looking for a moral certitude. And how do you judge that? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to the work you did in your prudence of seeking consultation, of, of forming your conscience. But there are going to be difficult cases and decisions that you are going to be faced with, uh, moral dilemmas. Uh, and we're going to look at some of those over the course of the year. And really decisions of consequence, life or death. A lot of them, I think, are, are denying treatment or refusing treatment. And, and what type of treatment? Is there a difference between refusing a pacemaker versus refusing dialysis? Jared thinks there is. Why do you think there, there's a difference? Yeah. Yeah. It would be very, very hard to argue that a pacemaker is not ordinary because the way it is now, maybe 50 years ago it would have been, uh, but dialysis is, could be seen as a disproportionate burden. Uh, it would be very hard to say a pacemaker is not. Like, I refuse to get a pacemaker. Now, could there be complications that, that come along with this? Yeah. Uh, but that's why we we'll have to look at things within the perspective of the acting person. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me like we're following the patterns of the historical um, reality rather than, in other words, it's, it's taking the practical historical experience rather than a, uh, a principled understanding of those terms. In other words, if everyone keeps doing a certain action, it mm -hmm. becomes normal and ordinary. But if that action is weird or inappropriate or extraordinary in a sort of uh, uh, hypothetical mm -hmm. way, um, 
just for example, a pacemaker is you're sticking a you know a metal you know object in your body. Mm-hmm. It's a little weird. It is. Except for the last twenty years. Correct. You know, so things become normative and ordinary, practically and historically. Is that we're just following whatever normal? I, I, I think it's a so fact. Years ago, it might have been extraordinary, but now it's no big deal. Is that, well, you, have, you have to follow your. Is that a requirement? Is that the standard of ordinary? I don't think it's a standard, but it's a factor in it. Sort of like we talked about where today, if you have a compound fracture, amputating your arm would not be the solution. But 500 years ago, it might have been. And so it's, it's because as, we, as our understanding of science, the body, technology advances, yes, then certain things that may have been extraordinary will become ordinary. So there's a certain there's a certain relativism to it relative to historical situations, but also uh, the, uh, something that may be done in a first world country that becomes ordinary would be extraordinary in a third world country. I'm thinking the, the positive obligation to preserve your life. It seems like that we should have much more leeway for someone. You're just a, let's just say you're a 75 year old man who like you're, you're sort of satisfied with your life and you kind of had enough. You're okay with, with not having really any treatment. Well, and that's a possibility, but that's where it's going to have to be judged in individual cases with individual things. Because, like, it's not just a 75-year-old man. It's a 75-year-old man who is impoverished, who has cancer, who, you know, maybe uh, is fearful of having even a very non-invasive surgery. What is a non-invasive surgery today versus what's a non-invasive surgery then? It's all going to be almost, I'd say all relative but it's going to have to be judged, at least from my experience, on a case-by-case basis. Is it also, from what I understand, it's in the right circumstances, anything can be ordinary. So in other words, in a, in a teaching hospital, when they're trying to develop a new technique, when the funding's there, which is how all these things happen anyway, all of a sudden it makes perfect sense. It's the most prudent thing in the world to do this revolutionary risky procedure because you're about to die. <coughs> Everything's set up and ready because the doctors are have this desire to push science forward. And you do it. So it's not it's not about an abstract idea of extreme in all cases, like you said. It's in certain cases, getting the most risky treatment in the world is actually prudential and correct and not extreme. And it's gonna be up to, particularly in these things, the risky treatments that are therapeutic but experimental, where they really if a teaching hospital, they're gonna you but the the individual patient of their circuit is gonna be the one who's gonna have to make the decision. So let's look at these ERDs here, honoring the dignity of dis- the decision of conscience. Because I really want to get to prudence. Conscience is important, but prudence, I just think, is the one that governs most all of this. ERD 28, each person or the person's surrogate should have access to medical and moral information and counseling so as to be able to form his or her conscience. So this is a big thing. You know, many people who are very simple, like if you're... You know, sister talks about serving in, in the bayou or a lot of places in rural areas where people are uneducated. They're not, they're not reading the ERDs. They're not reading the, uh, the, the papal documents. And so they just have their gut feeling. Um, and maybe they'll make a decision that is not correct. How culpable they are, well, the Lord is pretty merciful in that. The free and informed healthcare decision of the person or the person's surrogate is to be followed so long as it does not contradict Catholic principles. And so we will respect, here's the, the autonomy of the individual. ERD 32, while every person is obliged to use ordinary means to preserve his or her death, no person should be obliged to submit to a healthcare procedure that the person is judged with a free and informed conscience not to provide a reasonable hope of benefit without imposing excessive risks and burdens on the patient 
or excessive expense to family or community. Once again, it's the individual's conscience uh, that needs to be respected. But there also is for healthcare professionals and institutions too. If you look at the introduction of part one of the ERDs, it says within a pluralistic society, Catholic healthcare services will encounter requests for medical procedures contrary to the moral teachings of the church. Catholic healthcare does not offend the rights of individual conscience by refusing to provide or permit medical procedures that are judged morally wrong by the teaching authority of the church. So if you come into the Catholic hospital and say, hey, y'all, I like a vasectomy, and they say no, well, you, can, you, can't, you can't say, well, you're not respecting my conscience. No, I'm very much respecting your conscience. You can go elsewhere. We don't provide the service, and we ask you to respect our conscience. And, and so kind of it goes, there's a bilateral direction there. One of the things that I really kind of brought up and which we could have a much larger discussion about, and maybe we'll get to it today, is conscientious objection, which becomes, I guess you could almost have a whole separate class on, that, that whether it comes from civil authorities or whether it comes from uh, hospitals, probably most often civil authorities, hospitals or corporations can't force you to act against your conscience. You have the right to civil disobedience. You have the right to say, no, I am not going to cooperate with this evil. Um, and, and of course, there are plenty of examples recently where I think this has not uh, been respected. Individuals do not want to have a cooperation ev with evil, with laws, or with institutions. And so people have the right to resist. But again, hospitals, in order to respect the individual's conscience, or we're just talking about hospitals here, but it could be any kind of co corporation, will often have conscience clauses where the nurse or the doctor or the patient or whomever is involved in that can have their conscience respected. Uh, so here's an example. The nurse who works at a Catholic nurse who works at a secular hospital that does vasectomies. Now you could say, well, she shouldn't be working at that secular hospital. Well, let's say that she is working in a different section of the hospital that doesn't perform vasectomies, but yet they need her to come serve at a vasectomy because that nurse is sick. Should she have the right in conscience to say, I in conscience cannot cooperate in this act? Yes. She should, yeah. Now, some may say you could get into all these distinctions in the cooperation of evil. Well, is it handing the doctor a scalpel? Is that the same as, as providing the soap to wash his hands? We can make all these different distinctions. But she should have the right. In the same way, if you work for Walgreens and you say, I, in contrast, have a hard time prescribing the morning after pill. I can't fulfill this. Now, they may say, oh, that's great. Well, then you go work somewhere else. They, I, you could say they have every right to tell you to do that. That's a bigger discussion um, if you want to. But where do we normally see, what are the big two examples of these healthcare issues or these conscience issues when it comes to healthcare, let's say in the past 10 years? What are the two big ones, at least in the U.S.? Gender reassignment surgery? N yes, that's part of it, but no. I'm like, like talking on like a legal national level. Abortion? No. The first would be Obamacare. 
the Obamacare, the contraceptive mandate, where basically, and this is just such being a flagrant jerk, you know, and this could be the, 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 the gender stuff where, hey, you know, this Obamacare, all institutions, including Catholic institutions, have to provide contraception in their insurance plans. And there's no exception. And so, of course, you know, we, we go to the Supreme Court and things end up becoming much better. But, like, not even giving the leeway for these organizations to be able to do that. Uh, you know, our, our legal experts can make commentary on that. That was a big debate back about 10 years ago with religious freedom. But what's the big, what's the big one that we've seen recently? Vaccine, Vaccine mandates. Now, so this is what this is. And, and, and we had these big debates and I got some consultation to this. So remember, it was that hospitals basically are different, different jobs, but different hospitals saying because of the hospitals and we care about the health of our patients, uh, any employee has to have a vaccine. And well, people would say, well, what about I have no choice? I don't want to have a vaccine because I disagree with it. What were the hospitals allowing for? Most hospitals were allowing for a certain type of objection. What type of objection? Religious exemption. Is that the same as the conscientious exemption? It's not. And this is the thing, you know, people wanted me to sign those religious exemptions. And I said, I technically can't because as Catholics, you're not, it's not like a Jehovah's Witness who can't receive blood. Our religion teaches you can't receive blood. Okay, well, fine. They don't agree with blood transfusions. That's a religious exemption. Conscientious exemption is going to be dictated. I can sign a document that says that you should respect this individual's conscience, but there's nothing in our religion that says you should not take a vaccine. So these hospitals and corporations were smart. You know, they're going to kind of go down the line. Now, some bishops and individuals did sign it and say it's a religious exemption. And I can understand if you want to do that, but then the hospital would say, and they wanted you to prove, even though most of them didn't care at the end, show me in your Bible or your Book of Mormon or wherever where you can't do this. Uh, and as Catholics, besides respecting conscience, we're not going to have something against the vaccine itself. See, well, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't think that it's a big, super big deal, you know. I mean, like, hey, if, if, if some of these non-Catholic ministers should have been saying, if you start tithing to my church, I'll write you one of those. I mean, come on. You know, you could make some, like, like uh, I mean, it was just such a tricky issue. And, and what the other thing was like, okay, if you want the exemption, would it be fine then for the, could have been much easily solved and say, well, if you don't want to get the vaccine, we'll let you not get the vaccine, but we're going to want you to do certain other things, like wear a mask or wash your hands more often. Yeah, but it, it ends up being all or nothing. And that just causes so much, I think, unnecessary tension. So you mentioned how um, hospitals will have, or institutions will have conscience, um, conscience clauses for their employees. Like, two questions. First, that's like, so that way the Correct, yes. So do they have anything specifically outlined, like, okay, if the patient uh, conscientiously objects to whatever procedure or thing that, that we are committing that, or and there was never that until 
the conversation of vaccines had to come up. I don't fully... Like, did, that, did they have that extended to their patients too, where patients have a legal right to eject based on conscience, or is that even... Well, I mean, again, that's more of a, the legal aspect, but I think it would be, yes, the patient could say no. But then again, the patient is not an employee. The patient is a consumer. And so, yeah, if you don't want this procedure, well, then you don't need to take it. The, the patient is never going to be forced to do so. Now, granted, maybe if it was an emergency situation and there was no uh, pulse or, or AMD or something like that, and they did a procedure on you, you woke up and all of a sudden you had a vasectomy, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, then maybe there could be some some legal issues, but there's so much hospitals indemnify themselves. These institutions, and particularly hospitals now, indemnify themselves like not only hospitals, but doctors. And we're not going to get into that, but like really for malpractice, it's so hard to sue a doctor for malpractice right now and to get anywhere or to sue these hospitals. Uh, but that's we're going to that's social justice. Let's look at prudence. Now, again, these are we can. This is more beer discussions. Uh, there's so much to be talked about here. Uh, yeah, anybody want? If anybody wanted to have some discussions of these at College in tonight, just let me know. We'll hand out over there. <coughs> Ye old. So, uh, but for me, it's prudence. Conscience is important, but virtue is important, and we're going to look at the virtues. But prudence is the one. What is prudence? Catechism 1806. Prudence is the virtue that disposes practical reason to discern our true good in every circumstance and to choose the right means of achieving it. So it is that charioteer of the virtues. While conscience tells us what we ought to do, prudence is the thing that tells us how to do it, how to achieve it, um, to make Conscience can be abstract in saying, I'm making these rules and judgments about what ought to be done. Conscience is going to deal, I mean, prudence will deal with concrete action, not just a judgment of the moral suitability of the action. How do we achieve this end? I know what I want to do. It's going to culminate in a practical decision, discerning here and now what is to be done. Conscience guides the judgment of prudence, but prudence says, in this situation, this is how I'm going to apply these things my conscience has come to understand. And it's often got to judge quickly. And so the prudent person is going to be able to issue a judgment pretty quickly. Maybe not immediately. It's still going to take a step back and, and have to evaluate and call a few people. But right now, prudence, like the prudent person takes five months to, to make a decision. No, not at all. That's the person who, who is pusillanimous, who is not able to make a decision. And of course, Thomas, in looking at prudence, mentions the number of habits of the mind and acts of the intellect that act together. Memory, like remembering past situations and applying general principles. Docility to the spirit. Counsel, so important. Talking to other people. If people come and say, well, I've made this prudential decision. Did you talk to anyone about it? Seek counsel? No then you didn't make a prudential decision. Shrewdness, foresight, being able to kind of like see what the possible results of this decision will be, the foresight, let's say, of a chess player. But all of this, though, ends up moving beyond casuistry. As we talked about last year, you can have all the cases, but each case is different. 
You can read all the manuals you want, but hey, in this specific case, in a first-person ethic, what do we do? And a lot of the times, doctors and medical professionals are going to have to make prudential decisions quickly in the surgery. You know, what, what do I do here? What's the best course of action? Some of them are going to come to you for guidance of their conscience. Uh, where do I find the resources? How do I learn? Uh, Father Champagne was just telling me that they've started the Physicians, Catholic Physicians Guild in Lafayette. And I knew this the case. Lafayette is an unbelievable diocese. I'm biased towards it, but they had over 200 Catholic doctors show up for it. And we have so many solid Catholic doctors who really like, who, who want to know and want to understand and want to be formed. That's what we're looking for. But the, the, the real point about prudence there is parishioners are going to come to you a lot of the time, um, whether they come to you directly with a question of conscience or, or of how to do something. They want their conscience formed, as I said, but there's a concrete decision that has to be made. They're not just, Father, tell me why I can't have a vasectomy. That's just forming conscience. Uh, Father, you know, my child is on life support. Um, they want to have this very risky surgery um, where is the chance that the child might die or might, you know, end up brain dead or something. Should I, should I have the surgery? These are very complicated issues, not only intellectually, but also emotionally. So I want to offer just five practical points from my experience and if there's any, you could probably give some more. Maybe if I thought about it more, I could offer more. Number one, have the humility to admit you don't know it all. That, that's so important. They come to you this question to say, you know, Mr. And Mrs. Smith, my heart goes out to you. I wish I had a clear answer to your question, but I don't. I wish I did, but I don't. But we're going to find an answer. We're going to find an answer. I'm, I'm going to walk with you through it. Number two, most important, seek counsel. Talk to experts, particularly doctors, lawyers sometimes you might need to. Hey, what, I don't fully understand the situation. How does, how, do, how does this procedure work? What is actually going on here? But also call priests. You all, you can call me if you want. Um, you all should in your diocese have at least one priest who's known to be the bioethicist. Champagne's the one in our diocese. And as I said, contact the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Do not be afraid to do that. Email them, call them, particularly if it's a priest. And let's say it's a really life and death situation. Tell them, this is a life and death situation. I need you to call me back. They will. They will. So for me, like, and I'll tell you, like, in cases where I have been 98% sure that my answer is right, I will still get a second opinion. And, and I think that's uh, always wise and prudent. You know, I'm 98% sure this is correct, but I just want to make sure and, and get someone else's opinion. I'm blessed. I can call Father Nicanor or Father Tadpolchek, so I'm, I'm good. And if there's ever a case where, like, y'all call me and I don't know it, I will call one of those guys. 
Um, and I've done that before. It's like, I don't know the answer to that, but let me call someone who does. So d- don't be afraid to make that. It's never an inconvenience. It's never something that's going to make the priest mad. The priest wants to be able to give that to you. Or if you know a layperson who knows a lot of stuff like that, please make the call. Number three, and I guess this is memory, try to think of analogical cases to draw principles. Well, this is sort of like what it is. And over time, as a priest, you're going to get more and more experience. So I remember I dealt with a case sort of like this before. This is going to be particularly true if you do work as a hospital chaplain uh, or you are, have a hospital in your parish. I mean, there was one when I was in Mamu, I had a hospital in my parish. I was there every week, almost every other day when I was in Mamu. No, but it's a big they, country. These rural hospitals are coming back. These big companies are buying rural hospitals and, and putting doctors there. So, yeah, you're going to make decisions. Number four, prayer and reflection, particularly, I think, the gift of wisdom, asking the Spirit to help guide you and, of course, to inspire your prudence. And then this is where I think the finally is accompaniment. Um, Hey, this family's coming to you. Let's talk about it. What are the different options? Let's discuss. And that could be a lot of emotions that are very, very high. You may be at the person who needs to to bring some reason to there, but it can be a real time of evangelization, real time of evangelization. Um, and where you're, they're going to listen that often because you're the priest, they're going to listen to you. You know, I, a number of times when the most common question I'll get is, is call me father, you know, my husband or my grandfather is, is in the hospital. He's in ICU. He's on the vent. Um, we were trying to decide whether we should remove the vent um, and to let him go peacefully. But there will always be some people who don't want to let, it go, let him go. They don't want to let him go. And so would you come over to the hospital to anoint him? And you go to the hospital where you're going to anoint him, but th- that you're going to have often factions of the family. You know, some want to remove the vent, some don't want to remove the vent. Or there are going to be questions that you're going to, first to talk to the doctor. Like, hey, what does the doctor say? And the doctor says, listen, you know, he's got cancer that's metastasized. Uh, he's brain dead. Um, he, you know, the vent, once you remove it, he's just going to die naturally. But it's not like he's a 14-year-old kid who just got in a car accident. I mean, th- that he's not breathing on his own. Mm-hmm. It's a very difficult, I mean, it's a difficult thing to do. It's a fairly easy decision to make. But you're going to have to be able to try to convince the other family you're not killing this person. And, and you could make your quality of life argument if you want, but there's really not. It's, he, he's not really alive. The machine's keeping him alive. There are going to be other cases that are not as clear, but you're going to have to be there to accompany them. And you're going to be there when they remove the vent sometimes and to pray with them as the person passes. Sometimes it takes just a few minutes. Sometimes it takes a few hours. But these are, are, are just real-life things. And you're going to, to have that memory to be able to bring into the decision later. Some are not going to be as clear. Remember one of them that was, was a grandfather was dying of cancer and he got an infection. And there was this super high dose antibiotic that they wanted. Like this guy was kind of actively dying, if I'm not, I'm not mistaken. And he got an infection and they were deciding whether to give him this antibiotic. But this antibiotic which antibiotics generally are ordinary care, 
but was going to rip his stomach to shreds and they were going to have to give it through the peg tube and, you know, it was going to make things even worse. It was not necessarily going to prolong his life, but the questions had to come down to, would, would not giving the antibiotic, his sickness lead to death? If I gave the antibiotic, would that be causing more problems than not? And it was a really big discussion. Um, I can't remember what we decided to do. Um, I remember I called Father Tad about it. Um, but you're going to get into trickier issues like that. And that's where, like, take your time, make your phone calls, think it through, go to your different bioethics books to try to find an answer. And of course, you know, with a prudential decision, if you make it in good conscience, sometimes you make the wrong decision. But just know that, that the Lord provides and, and your culpabilities lessen. I, I want to close before we have a little test on, or roll the dice, and maybe have a test on other virtues. The first one of the principles that Beauchamp and Childress bring up, autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence, the other is justice. And we're going to see that, uh, particularly when it comes to, of course, what you owe to the patient. <clears throat> You owe a truth, you owe uh, your service, you owe a, a desire to bring them health, but it's more in the area of social justice. So we have a hospital, what do we do? Do we have preference or treatment for the sick, the vulnerable, the elderly? How do we provide health care to the poor? Where does the money come from that? What about times whenever, like at the beginning of COVID, when uh, ventilators were, were not in abundant supply. You had to ration care. Who gets the care? Who doesn't get the care? What criteria do you make to decide that? Do people have a right to health care? If they do have a right to health care, what kind of health care? You know, what is the just medical system? We're going to look at that throughout the semester. On a more individual level, of course, there's patients. You're going to have to be patient with people who are suffering and are, are anxious. Fortitude, boy, this is an important one. In difficult cases, we're going to press through. We're not giving up. Hope, giving them hope that no matter how bad things are, the Lord is there with them. And, of course, charity and love and guiding all things. But the one that I want to emphasize is this, and I want to emphasize it to sort of put it in the perspective of what we talked about, about the technocratic mindset at the beginning of the week, is compassion, empathy. Um, granted, we criticize the motivism where we can't, we should not be making moral judgments on emotion. However, we can't go to the other extreme. You can't just coldly apply rules and bioethical principles. Well, the NCBC says this, so da da da. No, grandma's dying, their child has got cancer. You've got to have empathy. And this is part of the accompaniment. You've got to be willing to suffer with people. Your heart is going, I just tell you right now, the time that you have to do a funeral, your first funeral for a dead child, just get ready. Just get ready. Particularly if you walk with that family for a while, uh, it's, it's going to be brutal. It never gets easy. Never, ever gets easy. Or when you have like some sort of a tragic death of a teenager who died of cancer or something like that. Your ability to be present and to empathize and accompany them is, is important. To be at the bedside when they're dying, to go visit. Uh, and again, I, I say, you know, 
I'll repeat it again. I heard this on a podcast. You know, they say, don't just stand, don't just stand there, do something. Don't just do something, stand there. Be present. Yes, Isaiah. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, I know it's going to depend on individual cases and persons, but what do you, what do you think people are really looking for in empathy? Like, do they want you to show emotion or do they just want you to be like a sort of, like solid comforting presence. Solid comforting presence. Keep, keep your head with you. Oh, yeah. Emotions in check. Yeah. Don't give stupid advice. Don't say stupid things. You know, Jesus never gives us more than we can handle. No, I don't say anything. I go there, I anoint, I pray with them, I'm present. They want the stable presence, am I fine? But particularly when priests give these theological answers, they're not looking for advice. They're not looking for that. Don't say dumb things. Say nothing. It's yeah, usually the best. I guess it's more like, I mean, say we're giving... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, you better. Yeah, you are going to allow yourself to. They want you to be strong, but like the funeral, like, hey, if you're going to choke up. Yeah, I'm not saying be like William Hurt and broadcast news and fake the the tears. But yeah. And then finally, one of the things that I I think I'm going to encourage you to listen to is I listen to a podcast about euthanasia where and this is a whole bigger thing where this journal, this is special Olympics athlete in Brussels who wanted to commit euthanasia. And so they kind of documented the process and she was there when the woman killed herself. And and you listen to it and you can be super judgmental. Do you know what? Like you're going to get teared. You're going to get choked up listening to this woman's story. Where was the Christian? Where was the Catholic? Who was willing to journey in a company and listen to this woman? Maybe they were there. I don't know. But this secular reporter was there. And so I'm not saying you should listen to this to say euthanasia is a great thing. We could say it's a great thing, but what kind of narrative are we giving to say, like, how people can suffer? Um, where are we present in that pastorally is the big issue. So let's close with a, a, a glory be, but then we're going to roll the dice. Glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It was the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.